0: But turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6. We started this church based on the Word of God, and that's where we're leaving this building. And as Mike says this morning, that's where we're going to next week. Um, so there are a lot of emotions that go through our minds and our hearts as we uh, think about what God's done here in this particular facility. Um, just as you look at things, you see objects, you're reminded of the way God worked and people that you've seen. Uh, prayers that were offered, sermons that were preached, lives that were changed. Um, so we do praise God for those things. Um, by the way, I really don't want someone to lose this. I think this is a really nice Bible. <laughs> Someone's going to miss out. They just published this last year, so I know this is new. But if this is yours, and you want to give it away, then give it away. But the Systematic Theology Study Bible, it's nice. Let's go to God in prayer. We need his help to, to discover the truth of a difficult passage like this. Let's ask for his help. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for just uh, the day of remembrance that you've given us the day to reflect back on uh, just the last decade of ministry that just happened in this building. Lord, we know that the the church is your people throughout the centuries, Lord, and into eternity. Um, But we do thank you for just how you've acted in time, space, and history, and in particular places. And we've seen you work. We've seen you grow people in Christ. We've seen you bring people to yourself. And we've seen people have opportunities to grow in ministry and serving each other. We thank you for all these things. We bless your name for these things. We do pray that you bless the people who came tonight. I pray that they'd be nourished by your word. And Lord, I pray that I would do my absolute best just to point them back down to what your word says as we hold these pages in our laps. Lord, I pray that that we would be changed in our minds and in our hearts to live lives that are honoring to Christ. And we do praise his name. We do ask us in Jesus' name amen and there's a lot of faces here this week that weren't here last week so I was thinking I only needed a few extra handouts but I do have 14 handouts so if you wouldn't mind if someone wouldn't mind passing out a few of these thanks I'm sure everyone who had them last week brought them back I just know that's what you do with these kind of things pressing on to spiritual maturity that's where we started last week and we will continue, Lord willing, that or finish this passage, Lord willing, tonight, Hebrews 6, 1 to 8. Um, to remind you of the uh, big structure of this warning passage, something that goes from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, um, toward the end of chapter 6, I'll show you again. We saw the confrontation, that's where they were confronted as being spiritually mature, hey, you guys are weak in Christ, you guys need to grow, you guys need to be uh, observing how immature you are, He confronted them very heavily. And then we saw last week the call to action. So you guys don't stay there, but you keep moving on. You press on. Let us press on to maturity. And then we started last week to look at the warning itself. Like what is the actual warning? What's the danger? What's he telling them? And then next week, Lord will be at the encouragement. And so tonight we're going to be looking specifically at finishing the warning itself. That's where we are tonight in the big structure of things. And if you have your papers from last week, or if you have new ones tonight, you can follow along and that will be helpful to you, I believe. Let's read our text together. Turn to Hebrews 6. We'll start back at verse 1 to get caught up on the context. Hebrews 6, chapter 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. So last week we boiled down this passage to two statements. Two statements. And you have them in your notes there. First one is that perseverance is God's commanded path. For every believer. Perseverance is God's commanded path for every believer. And we started to look at the second statement. That was those who fail to persevere face certain doom. Those who fail to persevere face certain doom. So why those two statements? Why those two statements to summarize this whole thing? Did God put these verses here in the Bible just to create a real nice debate between Calvinists and Arminians? Is that why he did it? So we could just have a real nice discussion about that. Is this passage still up for debate? As if we can never really know what it means. I have a book at home called Four Views on the Warning Passage of the Book of Hebrews. It's a good book. Okay, I'm going to recommend it. But it's called Four Views on the the Warning Passages in Hebrews. But there's a problem that happens often in our hearts. It's not the book's fault that I'm talking about, but the problem that happens in our hearts whenever we have like a counterpoints view of the Bible, where everything in the Bible is a matter of debate. Oh, yeah, we get, oh, here's another passage. Up, there's five views on this passage. up. There's three views on this. up. There's two views here on the rapture. Up, it's just a Bible full of multiple views. It's kind of just like an academic work presenting the good things on this side and the good things on that side and the pros and cons. The problem when we have a view of the Bible like that is we maybe will just say, hey, there's scholars who have all these views. Who am I to think that I could understand it? Or you might fall into a second problem where you just you pick a side, memorize a few proofs, you file it away, and you don't think about it again until maybe someone comes up to ask you questions about it later, and then you have some questions memorized and you can just make them quiet real quick. And say, so, yep, this is the view and we're not going to talk about it anymore. So. I think having just a counterpoint view of the Bible can be a dangerous thing if we're only thinking about the Bible in those terms. Because the real problem comes is when in the process of doing that, we forget the context. We forget the flow of the argument of what the author is saying. No passage of Scripture is a pool of water. It doesn't just stand alone. And this passage is no different. It's part of a river flowing through the book of Hebrews. It's an argument that started at the beginning, is here in the middle of the book, and it's continuing on till the end. So we need to look at this passage in terms of where the author has been, where he's now, and where he's going. That's how we need to look at every part of the Bible. And this is no different. So when we looked last week at verses 1 through 3, we saw that perseverance is what God has commanded for every believer to do. And this was really the heart of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. We gave the the, uh, quote from Wayne Grudem, and I'll read it to you again. I thought it was a really clear definition of the perseverance of the saints. He said, The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So it shows both sides. It shows God's eternal security holding on to the believer, and it shows that the true believer will persevere to the end. Both things are true. And we looked at verses 1 through 3 last week. We saw that the goal was what? Maturity. Maturity. Pressing on. We said last week that no genuine believer is ever expected in the scripture to stay in a perpetual state of immaturity in Christ. We said last week that there's not two ways to heaven. There's not, well, I'll take the carnal way or I'll take the spiritual way. You don't get to choose. Sitting on the bleachers, Is not a biblical option in the Christian life. There's no such thing as a lifelong infant in Christ either. And ultimately those who don't press on should have no assurance that they truly do belong to Christ. And that's what we really saw in those first three verses. And I don't want you to misunderstand it either, just to clarify. Does that mean we're all going to be 100% morally perfect in this life? Does it mean that? Not, Not for a second. Does it mean that every work we do will be equally valuable? That's not true either. Does it mean that no believer will ever be immature? doesn't mean that either. Immaturity is a possibility for believers, and that is the point. That's where these readers were, and the author is calling them out of it. He's calling them out of that state of immaturity. He called them last week not to put themselves in a position where they would need to lay the basic foundations of Christianity all over again. That was the main call last week. And then we reach number two, those who fail to persevere face certain doom. He was calling them out of spiritual immaturity. Why? He says the word for, in verse four, or because. Why should we pay attention to this? Because those who fail to persevere will face punishment. And we all wanted you to see four things under this point. Number one, the people who fall away. And you see this in your notes. The people who fall away. Number two, the tragic consequence. Number three, the cause. And number four, the clarifying illustration. Last week we covered the people who fall away. We're still reviewing, but I want to revisit this point very briefly just to clarify things. And people uh, who weren't here last week need this to get to where we're going tonight. So who are the people who fall away? That's the question we need to answer briefly again. Who are those people? First thing we need to say about that is that they are people who have already fallen away. I want you to notice that in the verse. People who have already committed apostasy. The author is showing us what an apostate looks like from beginning to end. Showing an overview. It's like this is how he began, and this is how he finished. From beginning to end, like a bird's eye view of what happened. He's not just showing them a small part of their life, saying, hey, look at that little piece of their life. Look at that bad thing that happened. Ah, they don't got any hope now. They no, are showing the whole picture, how they had all the privileges of maybe even professing Christ and maybe even being in the church and baptized, but ultimately a fake on the inside. That's the kind of person he's describing. And now look at verses 4 through 6 again. What are the five descriptions of these people? They were Number one, they were once enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They became partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then what happened? It fell away. And there are several different views on who these people are. One view says, we covered this last week too, one view says that this is just simply a loss of rewards, that these people just lost their rewards. This is the view of, have you heard the term easy believism, where you just, yeah, Jesus is great, I'll believe in him, and I'll just live however I want, and I'll be okay. That's not what this passage is talking about. Another view says that these were true believers who lost their salvation. So the application of it would be then, don't fall away, because then you'll lose your salvation. But that's completely inconsistent with what the rest of Scripture teaches. We saw several verses last week. So that's why some people come back and say, well, these are genuine believers, and this is what it would like if, hypothetically speaking, it were possible for them to fall away. But that isn't quite what it's saying either. It's not just hypothetical, and there is no if, okay? There's two translations that have an if in the text, but that's not there in in Greek. I don't think it's just hypothetical. What I said last week is that this passage is talking about the actual judgment of people who apparently were part of the body of Christ. Actual judgment of people who were among us, but they were ultimately fake. They were just apparently believers. And we saw four lines of proof that these people were not true believers. We saw the argument from the grammar of these verses. At the end of chapter 5, the author spoke to the readers and the second person, You remember that? He says, you guys need to be taught all over again. You guys have become immature. And you get to the beginning of chapter 6, he uses what person? He uses the first person. He says, Let's, let us press on to maturity. We, us. And then when he gets to those who have fallen away, he switches to the third person. Saying, not you, not us, not me, but them. So you see the three different groups happening there in those verses. Now, this is important. If you checked out, I know we're reviewing. Some people are like, I heard this last week. But don't check out. This is the point, okay? This is what I really want to get across. The author is talking to a church primarily made up of believers about people who have fallen away. So it would be like as if someone were standing here talking to you about a third-person group who had already fallen away. And now he's using those people as a warning to you. That is what is happening here in this passage. So if you've checked out before that, and you can check it after that, at least don't question me on that later on. Say, well, what you, what's going on? I, I, say, I, already, I, said, I said that in the sermon. <laughs> but the second reason why I don't believe, believe these were true believers is that in these descriptions, in those, in those four descriptions about what they had experienced, there's Old Testament background to all of those statements. And we looked last week in detail in parallels to Nehemiah chapter 9, and we could see how when those readers would have looked at these people who fell away, when they read this verse, or whenever they heard those verses being read, it would have made them think about that first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, they experienced all kinds of blessings at God's hand. They were guided by God's light. They ate manna from heaven every day. They had the Holy Spirit to instruct them. And then God gave them good statues and good commandments. But what happened to those people? What happened to that first generation again? They fell away. So is it possible for someone to have a heightened experience, see all those blessings from God's hand, and then ultimately reject him? Is that possible? That's exactly what happened to these people who fell away. So in the same way, there are people who get to taste the glory of the new covenant. Maybe even tell everyone, yes, I love Jesus. Maybe even get baptized publicly, profess to know Christ. But ultimately, on the inside, they reject him. And the number three reason why I don't believe these were true believers is that it's incomplete. It's an incomplete description. It doesn't say that they were saved. It doesn't say that they were justified. It doesn't say they were sanctified. It doesn't use any of those terms. So it's very strong language, very vivid language, but everything up short of being a true, genuine believer. But very strong language indeed, and we are to receive it as strong. And the number four reason is because the broader teaching of the Bible. When we look at many, many passages of Scripture, we see that God's going to keep His people in His hand, He won't let them go, and I said last week, they can't get themselves out of God's hand. Now, we've just proved, I believe, proved that these people who fell away were not true believers to begin with. Are we saying that this text is soft now, that has nothing to do with us, that we just say, oh, that's nice for people who aren't true believers, but we will just kind of sit by and look on them? Is this a soft text for us? This text is for us it's for us to be edified it's for us to be warned us here in the visible church so this is where we're going to pick up where we left off last week and don't you hate when preachers say after 20 minutes well that was my introduction i couldn't stand that when i was a kid i thought oh no <laughs> that's the only thing i heard him say and he's been talking for so long and now he's not even started a sermon yet but we needed to review i believe we really needed to see uh, some of the things to catch you up i usually don't review that much but let's look at number two there under the second point. We saw all the people who fell away. Now we need to talk about the tragic result. The tragic result in the second part of verse six. What future awaits those who have fallen away? What does the text say? I can't think personally of any more sobering truth in Scripture than this particular point. I can't think of a more difficult doctrine in all scripture than this particular point. It is impossible for these people who have fallen away to be renewed again to repentance. You say, well, it can't just quite say that. That can't be the final answer. We need to look at the history of the text. We need to look at all these things. We need to see these other pieces of evidence. I can't just say that so bluntly. Look again at the text. Verses 4 through 6 are all really one big sentence. Here's how the sentence is structured. Literally, it's impossible for those who have fallen away to be renewed again to repentance. It says, for those who have fallen away, it's impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. That's what it says. The words renewed again, they do not mean that they used to have genuine repentance but somehow they have lost it, and then they can't get it back. The Greek word also could be used to rebuild. So think of, the term, think of an analogy of constructing a building. What do you need to make a building? You need lumber, screws, nails, you need steel, you need materials, right, to make a construction. These apostates were people who had the glories of the new covenant expounded to them. They experienced the fellowship of the body of Christ. They had all the materials necessary that's what they had at their fingertips but what did they do with it they rejected it and it says here in the text that they would not be able to return to a place where they could rebuild a situation where repentance was possible because they rejected all the materials they could not go back and rebuild it because they've rejected it Do you see what's happening it's impossible they trashed all the materials they got rid of them you say well does impossible really mean impossible couldn't just mean highly unlikely or difficult this word impossible is used in another place in Hebrews look down at verse 18 in chapter 6 it says it's what for God to lie It's impossible for God to lie same exact word same exact context it doesn't mean it's difficult for God to lie does it does it mean that God probably won't lie does it mean that it's highly unlikely that God's going to lie? doesn't mean any of those things. It means it's impossible. Impossible does mean impossible. This is a very strong word used for a purpose. Next question. For whom is this impossible? Don't answer this out loud just yet. Think through this. For whom is this impossible? Is it impossible for God? Is it impossible for God to restore these people back? Is it impossible that for God to allow them back? Number two, is it possible, or is it just that the person's heart has gone so far that it's impossible for this person to be saved? Is it individually impossible? Number three, corporately, is it impossible for the Christian community to bring this person back? Which one is it? I would say all of the above. All of the above. God has offered man salvation. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He's offered it. There is only one way to receive that gift. And what is that? It's Through faith in Christ Jesus and his work alone. That's it. If someone rejects Christ's work, salvation is impossible. For whom is it impossible? Is it just that God won't let them or just that the person doesn't want it? It's, it's both. They've rejected God's offer and therefore God's not going to save them. And then they don't want it. It's all bound together. And then a third party can't make it happen either. They've rejected God's only means of salvation, faith in Christ. Next question. Is God being too harsh? Is God being too unloving? Is he being too mean? John Calvin said, though this seems hard, understatement, Yet there is no reason to charge God with cruelty when anyone suffers only the punishment of his own defection. That's the truth. Does the problem lie with God? Not not for a second. This is the sinner's willful rejection of the free and eternal forgiveness offered in the new covenant. It's the sinner's deliberate rejection. There is no salvation outside of faith in Christ. God will not offer the salvation to anyone who has willfully rejected his son. Next question, will God reject genuine repentance? Will God ever reject genuine repentance? You come to him genuinely repentant of your sin, will he cast you out? You come to him in faith in Christ, will he turn you away? He will never do that. But that is exactly the problem. A lack of genuine repentance is at the heart of the problem here. It's at the heart of the dilemma. What kind of person does this look like? illustration already given to us in the book of Hebrews. Turn to chapter 12 and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Chapter 12, verse 16. Who are we talking about here? Esau. Chapter 12, verse 16. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Verse 17. For you know that even afterwards... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. What does Romans 9 say about Esau? What does it lump him with? It lists him with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, certainly heading to destruction. See that in Romans 9, 12, 13, verse 22. The kind of repentance that we're talking about here is not genuine repentance. Esau's coming back, desiring to inherit the blessing. Was that real repentance? No, it's fake repentance. It's fake repentance. It's false repentance because its primary concern is not that the person has offended God, but that they're personally going to miss out. That's all it is. It's man-centered repentance. It's not, oh, no, I've grieved God for my sin because I've sinned. I've offended him. It's not that at all. It's, I'm going to miss out. I blew it. I'm going to miss out personally. It's all man-centered. It's not a God-centered repentance. And that is the key difference. This is why it's impossible, because they are stuck in a place where they are only living for themselves, and they've rejected Christ, even though they've seen what he's done clearly. So they said last week, this is a, hard, a harsh passage. It's a hard passage. But really, is it any more difficult than any of the warnings that we have already seen in Hebrews or that we're going to see? No one really argues about chapter 2, but it's just as difficult there. You don't have to turn there, but it says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's no escape outside of that. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. See the same thing in chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear. If, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Same warning. See it in chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Tough warnings. What about the New Covenant? There's grace in the New Covenant. There's love in the New Covenant. There's security in the New Covenant. There is forgiveness and hope and gratitude and glory in the New Covenant. All these things bound up in what Christ has offered through his blood. What about outside of the New Covenant? Not a shred of safety. And this is what the people were in danger of running back to. They're going outside. Say, I don't really want what I've seen in the New Covenant. I don't like it. I'm going to go back to the safety of where I used to be. But there is no safety outside of the New Covenant. So we've touched on this, what we're about to say, but at the end of verse 6, it specifically tells us what the cause is. The cause, you see that it's number 3 underneath our second point. So all the people who fall away, you saw the tragic result, and now you see the cause. What's going on beneath the surface? What's the cause? Why is this impossible? What's going on? At the very end of verse 6, it tells us two things. It says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since, or you can read that as because, two things it says, again crucify. They again crucify to themselves the Son of God. And number two, they put him to open shame. This is the cause. This is why it's impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. Number one, they again crucify Christ to themselves. How can they crucify Christ all over again? Is that possible to crucify Christ over again? How many times did Christ get crucified? How many times did he make a sacrifice according to the book of Hebrews? Once, once and for all, he made eternal redemption for his people. So I think there's two things we can say about this. First, this is obviously clearly not a literal re-crucifixion of Christ, okay? But what it it is is this. It's a personal re-crucifixion of Christ, something that in your heart you desire Christ to do all over again. MacArthur put it in a good way. He said, as far as they were concerned, Christ deserved to be crucified all over again. It was a a personal issue between them and Christ. They have willfully cut themselves off from Christ. Next thing we could say about this is that coming to Christ was impossible. Coming to Christ in repentance was impossible for these people because they rejected that once for all atonement of Christ. And it's impossible because coming back to Christ would require him to be crucified all over again. But they've already rejected it. It only happened once. Therefore, they don't have an atonement. What more can Christ offer than he's already offered? The question we have to answer. What else did they do? What else is the cause? They again crucified themselves. Christ, number two, they put him to open shame. They put him to open shame. What was not shameful about Christ's crucifixion? Was there anything glamorous about it? Not a shred. Everything about Christ's crucifixion, everything about his execution was shameful. It was publicly shameful. Hebrews 12 said that Jesus did what? He endured the cross? What did he despise? despised the shame. What did he endure? He endured hostility. By who? By sinners against himself. It was a shameful thing. Be turning to Matthew 27 see this in the mockings of Christ on the cross. Jesus was and is the true king of the Jews, as we've been learning in Matthew. How did they treat him? They made fun of him. They treated him like he was an imposter, like he was not the king of the Jews. Matthew 27, verse 28, they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, even though he deserved a true crown. They gave him a reed in his right hand, even though he deserved a true king's staff. They knelt out down before him and they mocked him. They said, Hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. They took a reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him. They led him away to be crucified. Look down at verse 39. People were passing by, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. So you are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days? Yeah, right. If he's the true king of Israel, then he'll be able to come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. So mocking after mocking after mocking, joke after joke after joke, shame upon shame. Now, what about these people who fell away? How do they relate to those? They've joined their ranks. These people are joining the ranks of those who mocked Christ on the cross. They're putting Christ to open shame. They're disgracing him. They're saying, what you've done is... A waste of time Jesus it's exactly where they were they joined their ranks now how do we know that there are two groups gathered in a visible church whenever we see a church gathering like this or the one this morning or that all around the world when people are gathering the visible church how do we know that there are true people true born-again believers and people who are just pretending how do we know that do we just make that up we see it right here in this text. That's where we have a clarifying illustration. We say, This is tough. Are you sure you're preaching us the right way? I say, Yes, look at the illustration that the text itself gives. There are true believers here in the group and there are false people who could fall away and face eternal destruction. The clarifying illustration it's a tale of two different soils. See the verses seven through eight. We live in an age of technology, don't we? We have we have we heavily rely on our computers. You see, even in here, we have screens, we have have devices, we have cords, we have everything going all over the place. What happens after a couple years of particular devices, your phone? Who has a two-year-old phone in the room? Just raise your hand. Who has a three-year-old phone? Four-year-old? Mine's old, but the point is, you see a new upgrade, you upgrade it. What happens to that old stuff? You can't upgrade it anymore. I brought my iPod Touch. Who knows what an iPod touches? <laughs> I got this probably a decade ago, um, but I can't update it anymore. I can't you know, put it on my Apple account or whatever and, and make it really do anything useful anymore. What is this close to? It's close to being burned. As soon as I can't do anything else with it, I'm not going to be able to use it. It was great. It cost 100 something bucks probably at the time, but I won't be able to use it anymore. What about the people in biblical times? What did they rely on for advancing in their society? Relied on agriculture is a huge part of their life. In biblical times, that's what they relied on. And if they thought in terms of soils, they thought in terms of plants. And if plants were useful, wow, that was an extreme blessing. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, we got food. It was an extreme blessing. What about soils and plants that weren't useful? What what happened with those? Get rid of them. So look at the text with that in mind, with this background. Look at verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for, for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Verse 8: But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. How many soils are described here? There are two different types of soils: you have a soil for blessing and a soil for burning. Two clear different types of soils. Do they get the same rain? Do they get the same sunshine? They have all the same opportunities to produce. They both have the same things. But what, do they, what does one produce? If one produces useful things. One produces helpful harvests, things that you can use. What does the other produce? Thorns and thistles, worthless things, things that are just not, not just that they aren't useful, but it's that they'll cut you if you get too close to them. These are thorns and thistles, things that are completely unuseful, things that are worthless. We saw the same thing in Mike's passage this morning. And as I'm, turn, I'm looking at Matthew 3, you can going to be turning into Matthew 7. What did the Max passage say this morning? Where was the axe? Sorry, an axe laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit, what happens? It's cut down and thrown into the fire. And Look at Matthew 7. We'll read it. Start at verse 17. Or verse 15, sorry. It says, Beware of the false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will know them by their fruits grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles are they so every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit a good tree cannot produce bad fruit nor a bad tree produce good fruit verse 19 every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire same teaching so then you will know them by their fruits Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Didn't we do these things? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are two types of soils in this passage. And then again, reminds us of the passage of the four soils. And I think you can expand these two soils to be different types of soils. And that's the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 13, what Dave read for us in Mark 4. Not everyone sitting in a church building on any given Sunday is going to receive the word of God with equal profit. Some are going to receive it and produce. Others, it will just fall on deaf ears. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Some people will hear it. And they'll produce, they will be able to tell the gospel to people who've never heard it for the first time. They'll be able to make disciples. They will be exemplary. They will exalt Christ in their lives. So the day that they die, other people will hear the exact same message. They'll get the same rain. They'll get the same sunshine, but produce nothing in the end. This is how the Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, has confronted and then instructed us about what to do for people who are in a state of spiritual immaturity. He's given us instruction. This is what it has told us. It's been very harsh, but it's been very clear, I do believe. He's commanded us to persevere, and he's given us a serious warning to people who do not. So as you apply this passage, and as you want to grow in Christ, and as you use this passage to help you grow in Christ, and as you use this passage to help other people do the same thing, I do want to leave you with several points that I do pray will clarify misunderstandings that you might have at this point, and help you make this portion not just, oh no, this is a scary part of the Bible, I'm like, I'm going to avoid it at all costs, but I want you to make this passage part of your Christian life. Not just avoid it or be afraid of it, but to see it in its context and use it in discipleship and for your own heart. First thing I would say is this, don't expect instant growth. Don't expect instant growth. Does anything good happen overnight? What about one of the soils that Jesus talked about? Pretty quick growth, right? But was it lasting? For true growth, it's not something that happens right away. Don't expect growth without pain. Don't expect growth without rebuke. Don't expect it without God's discipline. By the way, if you are being disciplined, it's a really good sign that you are not among those who fall away. Second thing I would say is this. Do anticipate seeing signs of growth. Do anticipate seeing that God is working in your life and that you do see yourself growing. Again, maybe slow, maybe really slow, but do expect to see God work. If are truly his. This is very encouraging for us to see. How many of you have seen God work in your life this week? This past week? One person. This week coming up. Expect to see it again. Expect to see God work. As you're trusting Christ. And in Christ alone. Number three. I am also not saying. That every believer will reach the same degree of growth. In the, by the end. And that every believer will grow at the same exact rate. At the same time. I'm not saying that either. There are, there are varying levels. There are spiritual young men, there are spiritual older men, figuratively speaking. There's people with different types of growth rates. I've seen new believers grow way past people who've been believers for quite a while. That's a possibility, that, that does happen. And that can be a shameful thing for, the, for people like me who have been a believer a long time, and you see this new convert just loving the Word of God and, and digging it in and going and telling people about the gospel, and you haven't told anyone about the gospel in three years. It can be a shameful thing for us. But we, we need to press on, keep on growing. Fourth thing I would say, or thing I would not say, I'm also not saying that a believer <clears throat> will not go <clears throat> Excuse me, a very long time without significant spiritual growth. It is possible that you could go an extended period and not see growth. That's possible. It's not the usual thing, but it is possible. The point is, what happens when you get to that stage where you don't see a lot of growth happening quickly? What do you do? You repent, you turn to Christ. Again, all of this is designed to turn us back to Christ. If you're going somewhere else, you've already gone the wrong direction. We already saw that in chapter 5. There is an inconsistency with these Hebrews between the amount of time they've had in Christ and the amount of growth that they showed there was an inconsistency so that is at least possible but we grow we press on complacency is possible we move on number five I would say this this is important what about the people I've known who have fallen away who at least seem to have fallen away should I give up praying for those people should I give up calling those people to repentance It says here that it's impossible, so I'm just going to check them off and move on to the next person. Or is that how we're to receive this passage? Not for a second. I want to focus just for a moment on our perspective on this and our responsibility. I'm not talking about God's view of this or God's responsibility. We are people, and God is God. I'll talk about what we are to think about these people. First First answer to that question I would give is this. It's not within our power... And it's not within our knowledge to pass the final sentence on anyone's soul. That's not within our power. It's not within our knowledge. 1 Corinthians 4.5 five says, Therefore, don't go passing on judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from all the people. From God, it says. From God. The praise will come from God. God will disclose what's going on in everyone's hearts. It's not our job to pass that sentence on anyone. God's going to take care of this one day. Second answer I give to that particular question of should we just give up is this. Patience, instruction, discernment are absolutely necessary. They're our requirements as we deal with people who are struggling or seem to be struggling with this. It's very easy to see someone who's spiritually struggling, someone who's immature. It's very easy to say, you did what? You did what, sin? You come back to me when you're saved, and then I'll talk. Next, please. It's very easy to do that, isn't it? It's very easy to say, yep, yeah, that person is just too terrible to be a believer. We'll go back to him whenever the Lord saves him. It's easy to say that. That's the easy way out. Now, I'm not saying that living a holy life is no big deal. I'm not saying we should just wink at sin. But what I am saying is that we should not take the easy way out when we're counseling people through difficult situations like this. It's easy just to say, Ah, that person was an unbeliever. Here's the key. It's our responsibility to discern between the people who openly hate Christ and the people who are just really struggling, people who want to serve Christ but just are having a really tough time. It's It's our job to discern between those two people, those two different types of people. It might be that the person just need someone to disciple him or her for the very first time in that person's life. We need to discern those situations. We need to actually think before we just cast the final judgment on someone. And here's why I'm saying this. There are some people who seem to have fallen away from our perspective, but may have not. That is a possibility. And I've seen this before. John Calvin said this. He says, but when anyone rises up after falling, we may hence conclude that he had not been guilty of defection. However grievously, he may have sinned. So we might have thrown someone into the category. Yet they fell away. They're never coming back to Christ. We might have just lumped them in there. But our perspective is limited. God might not have cast that person away. They might still rise again. We should pray. We should call them to repentance. What are we to do? What's our job then on the human level with our limited knowledge? Our job is the same job as the author of Hebrews that we've just read. Our job is to warn. Our job is to confront, our job is to instruct, our job is to disciple, our job is to call them back to repentance. And, at the same time, to not offer them hope as long as they are rejecting Christ, but saying that their only security, their only hope, is when they are clinging to Christ and what He's done. The sixth thing I would say in closing is that, if it's not genuine believers who have truly fallen away, then what's the point? Is this just a scare tactic? Something to just scare believers? Say, oh, you got me so scared. Now I'm not going to fall away now. Is it just like a, some kind of phony scare tactic? That's not what's happening either. This passage is not designed to make you think about the person sitting next to you. It's not designed to make you think poorly of the church down the road. It's not designed to make you think about how immature and unspiritual all your Christian friends are. It's not designed to make, to make you do any of those things. This is designed to do one thing, and it is for introspection. This is to say, this could be you. This is designed to say, what about my heart? This passage is not for the person out there. It's not for the person next to you. It's for you. It's for you to consider, for you to counsel your own heart with. This is a serious warning that you could be a fake, someone with a heightened experience in the church but ultimately lost. You might look the part. You might act the part. You might look exemplary. Just like counterfeit money could pass through several hands before it's discovered, but ultimately it will be discovered. Then you say this objection. Well, if there are people in the church who've had such a dramatic experience in the new covenant community, some people for even years, and those people turn around and they reject Christ and they show themselves to be false, if there's so many people who have done that, how can I be secure? How do I know that I won't be among those people who fall away? How do I know? What's all the security in the new covenant you've been talking about? Do I have any hope? What's the answer to that question? Definitely. Definitely. The warnings bolster. The security of believers. The warnings don't deteriorate believers, they bolster their security. And how is that? What do the warnings do? When we take them seriously, what do they do to us? They burn away our pride. They strip all our pretensions. They evaporate all of our smoke screens, all the things that we put up, and they leave us open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And it gives us only one option for hope, not in ourselves, but hope in the finished work of Christ. It's exactly where these warnings leave the true believer. The unbeliever, they say, ah, oh well. True believers say, wow, I need Christ. How can you know? Faith in Christ. How can you know? It's only by putting your faith in Christ. If you don't go home tonight with the work of Christ as the fuel of your perseverance, there is nothing else God can tell you that's going to give you any hope. You can't somehow manipulate Christ to accept you because you persevere, you're going to persevere because he has accepted you. That is the glory. That is the beauty of the new covenant, that in the blood of Christ you are forgiven once and for all. So what do you tell someone who's not persevering? What do you tell someone who's considering giving it all up? What do you tell someone who seems to be happy, complacent as an immature Christian? What do you tell yourself if this describes you? What do you answer? Tell them this passage. Tell them that God has commanded every believer to persevere. Tell them that people who don't persevere should only expect judgment. Tell them who Christ is. Tell them that what he has done on the cross did secure the final redemption once and for all for everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ. Tell them that. Tell them to fix their eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus. This is what we tell them. This is what we tell ourselves. Let's ask God to help us to apply this passage. As we take it home and think through the details I've had opportunity to think through this passage for the for the past year or more you might have just started thinking about it tonight But let's pray that God will help us to apply this passage accurately and that we would apply it let's pray father we do love your word we do love how it cuts it does not feel good but Lord we know that the faithful are the wounds of a friend we know that to grow we need your discipline We do know that we need to be warned. We do know that we are weak. We know that we are prone to pride. We know that we're prone to have pretensions, to put up smoke screens. We know, Lord, that we need to be stripped of those things and to be shown that Christ is our only hope for salvation, our only hope for this life, our only hope for the next. Lord, I pray that we would be deliberate about how we think through this passage and not just avoid it because it is tough. Lord, that we'd apply it to our hearts and that you'd help us to accurately, strategically apply it to the people that we know and love. We do pray that we would glorify you this week. We do pray as we have a busy week coming up, or just in personal lives and in the, in the life of this particular church, with all the moving, I do pray you give us grace and help us to have a great time of fellowship and point each other back to you this week. I pray that we would be committed to you, that we would grow, that we press on through Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.